escaping the cave. And I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. Zilla X-Pod. Tonzilla X-Pod. Out of Tonzilla Files, and welcome to the Escaping the Cave podcast. Tonzilla X-Pod on the Christopher Media Network. Thanks, Chris. We're back up there once again, also on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. You can also check me out over on the um, SoundCloud. I'm going to start uh, adding a few more things. I've added a couple of shorter clips, things that uh, maybe were not included or maybe were cut from other podcasts, things that maybe just didn't quite fit, but I still wanted to put out there. So make sure you check that out. It's over at SoundCloud. It's uh, Escaping the Cave, and I think my username over there, I've got so many, is uh, ToddZillaX. So you can also email me using that address, ToddZillaX at gmail.com, if you'd like to let me know how much you love me, because I know you love me. Right? Right? Eh, whatever. You know, I haven't done an original podcast, a real original podcast in over a year. A lot of things have gone on uh, since I last did one. <laughs> Obviously, you know, the release of the Mueller report. It, I, 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 I'm trying not to be as vulgar on the uh, resurrection here. <laughs> so we'll call it the fecal display, the fecal show in Washington, D.C. this week with uh, Bill Barr and the Senate and Congress. Uh, it's just... <sighs> I'm going to get to this later on. The institutions are melting down. They're failing us. They are protecting their own interests. They are not in uh, the business anymore of defending the Constitution, the rule of law. I'd love to say that uh, one side is righteous and one side is evil, but I'm hearing a lot of Benghazi coming from Democrats. Except it's phrased collusion. We'll get into that some other time. I do want to get into the mechanics of this a little bit later on, though, and um, sort of get in, I I think, into the psychology and the philosophy of it. Why we are where we are. See, I think that part of the problem we have right now is that we have no idea, we have no sense of self-awareness as to how we react to things anymore. I, I, I don't think we have any cognitive awareness. I certainly think that the vast majority of us, and I say that without being able to quantify it, admittedly, but I think the vast majority of us have no concept of external truth anymore. It's team politics. It's team collusion versus team cover-up. And the people inhabiting these two camps have no interest whatsoever in anything beyond victory, beyond owning the other team. And when you've lost any semblance of connection to truth, an external truth, something you're seeking, not something you're trying to impose upon anyone else, when you've lost that, you're entering into a dangerous place, man, especially when it gets to governmental levels like this. This isn't a little high school debate going on here. And I'm afraid... And a lot of people think I'm just paranoid, and that's fine. Think I'm being an alarmist, do you? Are you sure? Are you sure about that? Am I being an alarmist? Am I being a cynic? Or are you just afraid to look at it? To see where it's going? Time will tell. I'm pretty confident that I've got a grasp on this. How confident are you that I'm wrong? For those of you that don't know who I'm talking to and what I'm talking about, you will hear through the course of the podcast. So let's get to it, shall we? 
Now somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota There lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon And one day his woman ran off with another guy Hit young Rocky in the eye Rocky didn't like that He said, I'm gonna get that boy So one day he walked into town Booked himself a room in the local saloon Rocky Raccoon Checked into his room Only to find Gideon's Bible You know, human beings, we are storytellers. It's something in our DNA. It's something instinctual. We tell stories. And it's really simple to figure out why. We have very little understanding of anything. We are barely evolved beyond the cavemen who used to think it was the gods throwing lightning bolts down from the sky during a thunderstorm. That's not something a lot of people like to admit uh, about themselves or about you know the, the species to which they belong, but that's true. And we've always done that. Just like the caveman, you know, creating the god in the heavens, throwing the lightning bolt, we create narratives, we create fictions, we create mythologies to make sense of chaos. The things that we just do not understand. We've always done this, and it's not a bad thing. You know, there's, there are people, Noah Harari, for one, who put forth that these narratives are cohesive. These, are, these give, us, give us common things. They give, give us a common framework in which to believe. An imagined order, I think is how he phrases it. To make sense, to commonly make sense of things and cooperate, move forward, get things done. Religion. That's the primary one. It's the oldest one, I would assume. It also frees us up of the uh, anxiety that each and every one of us, not only us, everybody has a survival instinct. None of us, no, no, no being on this planet, well, a few I guess do, but most normal people don't want to die. We have a fear of mortality. Our candle extinguishing itself and going out. Religion takes care of that. But it's not just that. We need other things explained for us so we don't sit here wandering around aimlessly in a sort of state of anime. Wondering where our place is in the world. We need things to explain it. And Harari put forth that that was the one thing that we came up with. When we learned how to do this collectively, that's the thing that took us out of these small little bands of close relatives maybe 150 people in a, in, a, in, a, in a clan, and allowed us to build cities and allowed us to build civilizations, tribes, tribalism. I mean, we are tribal by nature. Sounds like a rap song from the early 90s. <laughs> tribal by nature? Is that a group? Whatever. And I've made the mistake, and I've had to rethink this a little bit, because I, I've consistently condemned tribalism. But it, it's something, it's like condemning blue eyes. It's a natural state. It's, it's who we are. We are social creatures. We want to gather with people like us. Thus, the common narrative. It creates the ability to coalesce into a larger group rather than just your family, your little clan running around in the woods. It creates a national tribe. And we are tribal. There's no getting around that. I mean, you can condemn it. I've condemned it. 
It was short-sighted. It, it was a lack of introspection, a lack of clear introspection into who and what we are. And a lack of understanding, a lack of willingness to try to understand why we are who we are. It doesn't even approach, presume to approach, how to quote-unquote fix it. It may not be something that can be fixed. Not everything has a solution. Not everything has a path to that utopian vision of the perfect human being. Sometimes you have to learn to work within your own limitations, right? So we are storytellers. We all have stories in our own heads, silent stories. Most of, most of the time, it's, I think, uh, subconscious. We don't even think about it, but we tell ourselves stories about ourselves, narratives about our own lives. You look forward and you imagine how your life story is going to end, how it's going to read from this point forward, or you think about how it's read from earlier points in life to where you are today. And it makes you feel a certain way about who you are and what you've done with the limited time you have on this earth. That is a story. That is a narrative. That's a myth. It's not typically based in reason. It's how you feel about it that matters. I used to be a hardcore anti-theist. I used to be really vocal about it. I'm not anymore because I've come to believe you have to be careful of killing the gods. I mean, Voltaire's got a great quote. It's, it's something down the line of, there is no God, but don't tell my servant because he's going to come in the night and kill me. <laughs> something will fill that, that narrative vacuum. Something will provide a sense of meaning and cohesion Something will narcissistically place them where they want to see themselves in the realm of existence. Search your feelings, Luke. You know it to be true. You know, I don't have a lot of heroes. I don't have a lot of people that I really look up to. George Orwell is probably uh, the one writer, the one you know, famous literary guy, political thinker that I do look up to. And he sort of re resembles Thomas Jefferson to a degree. Uh, one of uh, Jefferson's autobiographers characterized Jefferson as someone who was constantly refining his thinking rather than absorbing something, absorbing a doctrine. He was constantly evolving how he saw things based on reflection, new information, things he'd learned. He saw his mind as a tool for reshaping life rather than absorbing some grand design, doctrine. Originally, this podcast was going to move toward political religions. And I think that encapsulates my idea of political religions, ideological religions, really, really well. A lazy way to go about finding something that conveniently explains the unexplainable. Because you cannot do it yourself. And you, we, are typically too overwhelmed, perhaps, to try to figure things out for ourselves. So we find something, anything, any grand design that will explain everything for us. That is, to me, the crux of ideological religion. And it's cult thinking to some degree.
And George Orwell was the same way. I mean, depending on who you talk to, you can find anybody, you can find somebody on the left and somebody on the right who absolutely despises him, while at the same time, you'll find somebody on the left and somebody on the right who claims him as their own. And that's what I like about him. He went from being a borderline communist, definite hardcore socialist in the mid-late 30s. He went off to Spain. He went to fight fascism in Spain in person. Got shot in the throat doing it. But he evolved. He came out of Spain with a personal experience, a personal experience with communism that horrified him. He saw what it really was. And he came out of there as opposed to communism as he was opposed to fascism. He had no home. There was nobody. There was no, no camp, no, ide- no ideology or no cult that explained it all for him. No grand design that was apparent to him. Animal Farm was written after his experience in Spain. Animal Farm is a direct criticism of Stalinism and the Soviet Union. Socialism. Gone wrong. Whereas 1984 addresses totalitarianism of all kinds. This is funny. I found a book at a used bookstore called The War Commentaries, written by Orwell. What I thought it was were essays written by him during World War II, and I thought, oh, this would be cool. I had forgotten that he worked for the BBC as sort of a counter-propagandist. He would write dispatches to be broadcast globally on the BBC to counter Nazi and Axis propaganda with propaganda. He had to sort of bite his tongue. He had to sort of clench his butthole, (laughs) his idealistic butthole, because he knew what he was doing. He didn't like it, but he thought he was on the right side of history. He was on the BBC. He did it anyway. He sort of, you know clenched his teeth, and went along with it. So he would write material that would have to pass through the censors as both safe, not a threat to the war interest, but also had to pass through a filter of acceptability, informational acceptability. It was propaganda. He did that. When I figured this out, I sat sat down the other night, and I was like, oh, this will be fun to read. And I'm like, oh, my God. I read the introduction to it. (laughs) Oh, my God. And in the back of this book, the uh, Allied Intelligence Services would listen to these Axis broadcasts and transcribe them because they wanted to know what they were talking about, what the the enemy propaganda was, so they could counter it with their own propaganda. And reading these two things, reading them both, is incredible. A fun experience. It's called the War Commentaries. Uh, the, The version I've got is edited by a guy named West. Worthwhile to read it. But back to my point, when he wrote 1984... He used that experience working with the British Propaganda Ministry, Ministry of Information, to craft that dystopian vision of the future where propaganda rules everything. It's accurate, and I'm going to show you how it's accurate later on. But that's what I like about him. I mean, he 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 evolved. He changed his mind. He changed his viewpoint. He was, was not intellectually static. He wasn't afraid to alter his opinions based on new information, new experiences, whatever. Today, that's a thought crime if you change your mind. 
it's always flip-flopping now. It has been since, what, 2004 with John Kerry. That's when that first came into the lexicon, right? Flip-flopping. If you change your mind on anything now, admit you were wrong about something, alter your opinion, you're suddenly illegitimate. You don't have the grand design. You're not putting forth the theory of everything, right? And it's that certainty, that seeking of certainty, and seeking to inflict your certainty upon people who disagree. That's authoritarianism. That is totalitarianism. Orwell understood that. He saw both sides of it. You know, he wrote something down the line of uh, a few hundred thousand people could be gotten to understand that it's useless to overthrow Tweedledum in order to set up Tweedledee, that the talk of democracy versus fascism, it might actually begin to mean something. Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Two sides of the same authoritarian coin. He also said that the frightening thing about totalitarianism is not that it commits atrocities, but then it attacks the concept, the very concept of objective truth. It claims to control the past as well as the future. We've all heard that line. You know, there are echoes of that right now. Tearing down Confederate statues, controlling the past, erasing it, rewriting it. Oh, it never happened. You can't have that. You can't have your own local narrative. You're not permitted because we've deemed it wrong and immoral. Controlling the past. Kate Smith, a recent outrage. She was a product of her time. Put together some pieces that folks today find distasteful. Therefore, she must be purged. Not to be played at a baseball game anymore. I saw a couple of the most ridiculous arguments. I can't even call them arguments. They were, I don't know what they were. But I found them online this week. They were Orwellian. One of the ideas was that uh, equality is inequality. That equality is not good enough. Equality is inequality. Slavery is freedom. Another one actually went to lengths to convince and show the reader that rationalism is irrational. War is peace. We've gotten there now. Our bite mocked fry, I guess. I mean, on the far right now, we've got gay conversion therapy. (laughs) Completely discredited, but there are a lot of people over there that still believe it. While on the left, guess what I found this week? I found a banner across that same website reading... Watch our How to Heal Internalized Whiteness webinar. Gay conversion therapy over here. Healing yourself from internalized whiteness over here. Tweedledee over here. Tweedle dipshit over here. This is the abandonment. The abandonment of reason. Bilaterally. These are real things, kids. Healing yourself from internalized whiteness as though you have to exercise a demon. Because you're white. 
How does that make any sense to anyone? How does that not set off every rational alarm in your mind? I don't know. I, I, I cannot relate to that. Not really. But I think I'm coming to understand it. And um, this totalitarianism, especially when it's an insurgent one, uh, not only attacks the past, rewrites and attacks established truths, but it also attacks the aforementioned national mythologies and religions, the things that keep us bound together. It obliterates them and wants to rewrite them themselves. If the premise that national narratives and mythologies are the cohesive glue that keep us from falling apart and ripping each other's throats out, if that's true, and you burn the narrative, wanting to replace it with your own doctrine and your own mythology and your own religion, what happens to that society? I guess pseudo-spiritual anarchy. Who are we? Anime. Right? Now, there's a guy named Mario Rosenthal who said that the, the only enemy that we have is totalitarianism. That's the common enemy in any guise. Communistic, socialistic, capitalistic, militaristic. That's the enemy, totalitarianism. We're unique because we have free will, according to Mr. Rosenthal, and the capacity to choose. And when this is suppressed, and you can't choose what you think anymore, you're no longer a man but an animal, a beast of burden. Now, Orwell had what I consider a degree of sausage party hope. <laughs> uh, he said that uh, there is some hope that the liberal... Now, understand when I say liberal here, don't get all engorged here, hippies, referring to classically liberal thinkers. The liberal habit of mind, which, and here's the giveaway, Moonbeam, if you don't believe me, thinks of truth as something outside yourself. The liberal habit of mind that thinks of truth as something outside of yourself, not something you get to craft as personally yours. My truth. No, we've gone over this. You don't get your own truth. Truth is singular. Versions of the truth, personal truths, are mistruths. See? Something to be discovered, according to Mr. Orwell, not inhaled and then imposed. Something to be discovered together. He had the hope that the liberal habit of mind would stick to that, that that would lead away from truth being something you make up as you go along, that that would survive and that that may be our salvation. That hope is rapidly disappearing. Grievance studies, blank slate theory, intersectionality, white supremacy, still around. <laughs> They're all using the kerosene of things like critical theory to ignite a bonfire of echo-chambered illusion, piles of illogical but convenient and agenda-friendly material to be passed around to justify nonsense. It's the same kind of contagious, you know, pseudoscience that's, that's thriving inside the minds of those who believe in things like flat earth theory and deny climate change. 
external truth. The idea of an external truth, something existing outside of your realm of feelings and how you feel, it's almost extinct. We have abandoned the National Foundation of Reason. I hear you. Everybody's got a bias. Fair enough. But I think it's important, don't you, to try to limit it as much as you can, to try to stick to an external truth to the best of your ability rather than abandoning that and say, well, I'm biased anyway. I guess I'll just embrace it. Can't fix it. Might as well give up. Is that the alternative here? I can't find the truth, therefore it doesn't exist, so I just, I'm going to make it up. This is how I feel. I truthfully feel this way, so therefore this must be true. No, I reject that vehemently and violently. You know, within this realm, this specific realm, the denial of evolutionary human nature, is, it's a dead giveaway. There's a hypocrisy there. We're all created as a blank slate. We're indistinguishable, except these white people over here. They're bad. They need to have their internalized whiteness purged from them. We're all the same thing. Well, except for men, they're bad because testosterone and the urge to procreate. I saw a t-shirt on Moonbeam's page this week where her son, whose gender voice in his head tells him he's a girl, is wearing a shirt that says, I survived testosterone poisoning. Indistinguishable. But testosterone is poison. Hmm. That's peculiar, I think. Yeah, all men are created equal, all right. But to invoke Orwell again, it's just that uh, men aren't quite as equal as women in a lot of circles. And what kills me, and I'll say it again, are you Uncle Toms, you penis Uncle Toms out there who are submitting yourselves, being submissive to this rhetorical batshittery. Why? There is no tether to equality here. You have got to be able to see that. You have to. At some point, at some point you will. I'm sure of it. But this is a bastardization of the term equality. This is where things like equality is inequality come from. You're the frog in the pot, boys. You've got to see that at some point. These are social vengeance warriors now. Demanding reparations, demanding that the patriarchy be replaced with a matriarchy. It's their turn to be president now. This is not equality. I don't know what it is, but that's not it. Actually, I do know what it is. It's vengeance. Vengeance disguised as euphemistic justice. It's exactly what it's become. And you have got to be able to disconnect from the cult long enough to be able to see it. Use your eyes. Don't let me convince you. Just open your damn eyes. Listen to the rhetoric. Look at the hashtag kill all men. Watch for people cheering male suicide. You have got to open your eyes, kids. 
You've got to. And what may be important is not so much for you guys to understand this. It may be more important for you. I, you have to understand. I understand that these people, these kill all men people, don't speak for all feminists. Don't speak for all women. I understand that. I get that. And I don't know of anybody personally, because I probably wouldn't be friends with them, <laughs> but I don't know of any guys personally that have any problem with women being treated exactly the same as men. In pay, in opportunity, everything. It's a commonsensical position if you believe in liberty and freedom and equality. It runs into a problem, however, when you expect to be supplicated to. Reparations. When you expect people to be punished for crimes they didn't themselves commit. Then you run into problems. Rightfully so. It's not how things work. Maybe you think they should work that way. Well, you're high. Because then you run into all sorts of questions and all sorts of problems with things like defining <laughs> the crime. Who gets to determine that? In a victim culture, the victim? How does that work? Hmm. It sounds pretty subjective to me. It sounds pretty totalitarian to me, actually. Sounds like sort of the way the gulags were set up once upon a time, to be perfectly honest with you. But that's a problem that you have. You have a messaging problem. Normal women, normal feminists. Because you're letting these women reflect upon you. These messages don't exist in a vacuum. You know, we don't sit here as human beings, and engage, you don't either. I assume if, you, if you're a, a neo-feminist or if you're a regular feminist, you probably hate Donald Trump and his <laughs> pussy-grabbing ways, right? I would assume that when you see things like Charlottesville and a few other occurrences over the last couple of years, that those extreme examples reflect upon Trump supporters as a whole, right? Do you suppose somehow miraculously, that these extreme examples of kill all men, testosterone poisoning, do you suppose? How do you, how does that happen? Where is the synaptic connection in your brain? I want it mapped so it can be fixed. Because if you suppose that it doesn't reflect upon you the same way Charlottesville and a myriad of other occurrences reflect upon Trump voters in your mind, you got something wrong. It does. It doesn't occur in a vacuum. We don't engage in 100 million acts of personal nuance every single day. People categorize automatically. If you're going to caricature yourself, not only are you going to reflect upon yourself as a human being, as an individual, you will naturally reflect upon the group. The group you suppose purport to want to advocate for. And your advocacy then becomes self-defeating you lose allies that way people who would normally be your ally and support you in your quest toward actual equality raising my hand right now you've got to understand that and you've also got to understand that it goes beyond this single issue this 
is how you are going to lose the election to the orange baboon again in 2020. You're hemorrhaging. As an entire political movement, you are hemorrhaging allies. People who normally would align with you understand that. I know a lot of you care about that. I know a lot of you are really concerned. You're trying to figure out how to beat this man. That right there, that path I just illuminated for you, will take you a long way. And I also understand that there's a large faction in that resistance Antifa crowd that just don't give a damn. We don't care. We're ready for the fight. Are you? You sure about that? That sounds like lambs to the wolves to me, boys. I don't think you are. But I'll tell you what. If your faction wins out, and that's the path that the uh, leftists are going to take moving forward, (laughs) bring a big stick, bitch. I will. Anyway, this next chunk (laughs) directly applies to all this. Escapingthecave.com. Also on Facebook and at ETC Pod on Twitter. If you only knew the things he's making me say, you'd stop bitching about the NRA and mercifully liberate me from this evil bastard of a man. band called the uh, Limbos. I met those guys in Chicago when I lived there a few years ago, and I thought that tune, I not played it in a few years, <laughs> I thought that was fitting coming out of that uh, last segment. South Dakota drag queen. Anyway, I mentioned John Stuart Mill a lot. I, I Well, I don't know if I had. I'm not sure if I would gotten into his stuff by the time I ended last year's podcast or not. Uh, but as far as independent thought goes, individual thinking, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty is the closest thing that I have found to a handbook yet. This thing is almost like my Bible. I fail miserably at a lot of the things he talks about in here, but it is wonderful for the task of awareness. There are things in here that apply to so much of what's going on today. I was just talking about this theory of indistinguishability, that all people are the same. And he writes, uh, a people, it appears, may be progressive for a certain length of time and then stop. Then he asks, when does it stop? When it ceases to possess individuality. Prescribes singularity, but it does not preclude change. Provided all change together. The same. Clones of one another, all thinking the same. That's, according to him, when progressivism dies. Says we're eager for improvement in politics and education in morals. Though in this last area, morals, our idea of improvement chiefly consists in persuading or forcing other people to be as good as we are. He should have put good in quotes. We flatter ourselves that we are the most progressive people who ever lived. It is individuality that we war against. We should think 
we had done wonders if we had made ourselves all alike, forgetting that the unlikeness of one person to another is generally the first thing which draws the attention of other to the imperfection of his own type. And the superiority of another or the possibility by combining the advantages of both or producing something better than either. The death of progressivism is the death of individual thought, individuality. There's another theory out there. I don't remember if it's uh, Mill or if it's uh, Emerson. They claim that the source of genius is always individuality, original thinking, not following the herd, thinking differently and apart from everyone else. That is the fountain of genius, according to one of these two. I'm not going to turn this into a reading session, I promise, but I'm going to read some more to you because this book is incredibly applicable today. Moving forward a little bit, I'll paraphrase because the language is archaic, written just before the Civil War. Uh, he says, There is no difference between the feeling of a person for his own opinion, how he feels about his own opinion, and the feeling of another who is offended by that opinion. It's no more the difference than the desire of a thief to take a purse and the desire of the right owner to hold on to it. This standard of judgment, thinly disguised, is held up to mankind at the dictate of religion and philosophy. <laughs> Moral judgment. It's religion, philosophy, and I'll add ideology to that. Uncompromising ideology, extremism. These teach that things are right because they are right. <laughs> because we feel them to be right. Sound familiar? They tell us to search in our own minds and hearts for laws of conduct binding on ourselves and all others. Search your feelings. That's how they should behave. What's the public supposed to do but apply these instructions <laughs> and make their own personal feelings ones of good and evil? And it's not difficult to show by abundant examples that to extend the bounds of what may be called the moral police until it encroaches on the most unquestionably legitimate liberty of the individual is one of the most universal of all human propensities. We love to impose our morality on everyone else. Amen. Oh, there's more. <laughs> no stronger case can be shown for prohibiting anything which is regarded as personal immorality that is made out for suppressing these practices in the eyes of those who regard them as impieties. And unless we are willing to adopt the logic of the persecutors and to say that we may persecute others because we are right, and that they, here's the key, that they must not persecute us because we are wrong, <laughs> get it? <laughs> Inconsistency there. We must be aware of admitting a principle of which we should resent as a gross injustice the application to ourselves. In other words, you want to persecute somebody for something you find impious? Well, you need to subject yourself to being persecuted as impious as well. Oh, no! <laughs> or else you have to give it up and let people think what they want, believe what they want. Individuality. Oh, there's more. Back in his day, a lot of the same trends, demands, were coursing through 19th century society. 
And he wrote about the thinking that the absolute social right of every individual, that every other individual shall act in every respect exactly as he ought to, that whatsoever fails thereof in the smallest example violates my social right and entitles me to demand from the legislature the removal of the grievance. Moral police, moral legislation. So monstrous a principle is far more dangerous, according to Mill, than any single interference with liberty. There is no violation of liberty which it would not justify. It acknowledges no right to freedom whatever, except perhaps to that of holding opinions in secret, without ever disclosing them. For the moment an opinion, which I consider noxious, passes anyone's lips... It invades all the social rights, social justice, attributed to me by the other's moral, intellectual, and even physical perfection. <laughs> to be defined, this is key, to be defined by each claimant according to his own standard. The notion that it is one man's duty that another should be religious was the foundation of all the religious persecutions ever perpetrated. And if admitted would fully justify those inquisitions and persecutions. The woke inquisition. <clears throat> Anti-American. It is. These are fundamental principles, boys and girls. Fundamental. 19th century. This is a classic. On liberty. Freedom. With liberty and justice. <clears throat> Not vengeance, for all. It's one of our foundational principles. And this book, On Liberty, delves into it. Freedom of opinion, freedom of expression, opening your mind to differing opinions, offering and it's accepting that you might be wrong, actually listening to the other person's argument, trying to figure out what they're thinking, because, hey, oh my God, there might be something in there that's correct and useful. Huh. It's all in this book. It's a pamphlet. It's hard reading, as you can tell. I can't even quote it <laughs> without having to think because the language is thick and the sentences are long, but it's worth fighting through. we got a couple more. It's a determination not to tolerate in others doing what is permitted by their religions because it is not permitted by the persecutor's religion. We don't eat pork. We don't like pork. Therefore, you can't eat pork. Right? It is a belief that God not only abominates the act of the misbeliever or the God of social justice, but will not hold us guiltless if we leave him unmolested. I'm going to read that last line to you. It is a belief that God of social justice not only abominates the act of the misbeliever, but he will not hold us guiltless if we leave him unmolested. It is our duty to punish him. To punish the infidel. And in the end, unless you're living in one of these totalitarian states, which is where we're headed, one way or another, I'll get to more of that later on, maybe next week. This is running long. But it's self-defeating. 
and you know this to be true. You're gonna, you've been wondering why the rise of racism, why the displays of racism going on all over the country lately, why people have been emboldened. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Trump. It may, well, it may be a little bit. But listen to this. I'm going to read this slowly because it's a little thick. If there be among those whom it is attempted to coerce into prudence or temperance behavior, any of the material of which vigorous and independent characters are made, in other words, if you're trying to convince someone to do something and they have any sort of intestinal fortitude, (laughs) resistance, character, they will infallibly rebel against the yoke. They will not be told what to do. That's important, don't you think? No such person will ever feel that others have a right to control him and his concerns any more than the accuser would have the perpetrator control his actions. And it easily comes to be considered a mark of spirit and courage to fly in the face of such usurped authority and do with ostentation the exact opposite of what it enjoins. (laughs) Hold my beer. Watch this. Woo! And the crowd goes wild. Then he uses the example of um, Charles II and the fanatical moral intolerance of the Puritans. I think that's hugely important. That last point is incredibly important. Because anybody with a sense of pride, anybody with a sense of character, of defiance, is going to do just the opposite of what you're trying to compel them to do. Independence. This is human nature. And beyond that, it's the fundamentals of American independence. That's our national character, man. What do you expect people to do? Okay, you're right. (laughs) I'm sorry. Come on. You've got to be operating from such a deluded perspective to think that people are just going to capitulate to you. People in this country? Come on. That's what makes us who we are. Independence. We're not going to submit to you, Mr. and Mrs. Puritan. We don't do that. At all. (laughs) Are you rebelling against a theocracy? Against religion being forced down your throat? It's the same psychology. You don't have to agree with it. You can have your beliefs, you can have your opinions on how people behave and how people think. You're entitled to those. But when you start crossing a line and trying to compel people into thinking a certain way, behaving a certain way, outside of the realm of affecting other people, Mill makes that very clear. Your liberty ends where my face begins. (laughs) That kind of thing. As long as you're not hurting anybody else, people are entitled to think what the hell they want to think. And as soon as you start to try to change that and try to force people to think and act a certain way, and that's what it's really all about, isn't it? The standards have changed, or they're trying to be changed. Our social vengeance warriors are trying to change these standards. This was written just prior to the Civil War, a long time ago, 150 years or so. And um, back then, what he was talking about was that Individual liberty extended until it harmed someone else. Either physically harmed the person or their financial interests. 
Something down that line. Direct harm to the human being. Now, in contemporary times, that's being changed or trying to be changed. So now, if I fail to use the proper pronoun, that's seen as direct harm upon your person. I've hurt your feelings, therefore I've harmed you. I've inconvenienced you. I've annoyed you. I'm not doing what you'd like me to do. You're frustrated. You're hurt. You're harmed. I've inflicted emotional pain. That's what we're talking about here. So now, individual liberty ends at your feelings? Are you kidding me? Are you, are you kidding me? No. That's not how any of this works. You're going to encourage the same exact behavior that you're trying to change. Hold my beer. You know, I've been doing this podcast uh, in one way or another, one version or another, since uh, 2014. Five years now, and this is going to be, I think, by far the shortest since that very first year. If I'm reading my time right, I'm coming in right around 50 minutes here. And here's the thing. It probably shouldn't be this short. Normally, it wouldn't have been. I have 12 pages of material typed up right here. Wouldn't call it a script. I would more or less call it a guideline. You know what I've gotten through today? Exactly two. So this would have turned out to be, I think, right around uh, maybe a little bit longer than an hour 45, maybe two hours. So I'm going to stick to my plan here, but not intentionally. Well, semi-intentionally. You see, I recorded the rest of this material. (laughs) And my computer ate it. Sorry, teacher, my Mac ate my homework. I'm sorry. Anyway, one final point I want to make about this. Uh, All this stuff is that I'm really fascinated these days, and this is something that I think has changed in the last year since I've done done a podcast with you guys, is that I've gotten really fascinated with evolutionary psychology, social psychology, evolutionary biology, how the human brain works. I'm really fascinated by it, and I have to give a shout-out, since this is my first podcast back that I'm actually voicing the whole thing on. I want to give, give a shout-out to Jonathan Haidt. One of the podcasts I did last year, I had a real hard time with, uh, because it uh, concerned this thing that I called the Don Quixote Complex. I couldn't articulate it. I mean, I've been chewing on this, literally, it'll be 10 years this September. And I couldn't figure it out. I, I had a kind of a fuzzy concept of it. I mean, I knew there was something there. I understood the basics of it, the, I guess the, the fundamentals of it. But I couldn't quite get to the core of it. I mean, you go back and listen to the podcast I'm talking about last year, you'll, you'll see it. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of there, but I'm not able to really deep down, uh, dig deep down and understand it. Jonathan Haidt solved that problem for me. He explained it. It's not something I conjured up out of my imagination. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's a real thing. I just detected it back in 2009. It's something we're all susceptible to. I knew that. I understood it. I saw it in myself. Despite being aware of it, it's something I could never, you know, get rid of. None of us can. We just can be aware of it. But it's his rider and elephant uh, metaphor. 
coming to emotive conclusions, emotional snap conclusions based on nothing but emotion, how you feel, and then engaging in post hoc rationalizations to support the vision or the emotive snap conclusion you've drawn. He calls it post hoc rationalization, post hoc reasoning, I guess. And it's something, according to him, that people don't realize they're doing. They think they're reasoning. They think that they're using their rational capacities when, in fact, they're rationalizing a snap judgment, an emotional choice. Huge. It's huge. I mean, that was something that uh, a light bulb... It, it was... <laughs> Light bulbs, that's just trite and inadequate of what that did for me. But um, it's also disturbing because people aren't aware of it. People aren't aware they're doing it, even when they're doing it, even when they're being told. Even when they're told they're doing it, a lot of people, most people, I think, don't realize it. They They refuse to see it. Or maybe they can't. I don't know. But awareness does help. Awareness of when you're doing it, when you can feel it. And one of the things that I, I put together in this podcast that got eaten by my computer, and I'm going to do this. I'll, I'll just probably I'll, I'll finish this up right now, and I'll probably sit down and voice it again. You'll get it in the next couple of days. But I can see it happening. I can feel it happening when it happens in extreme circumstances. I had an anecdote that tied into the neo-feminist mini-rant that I went on earlier, where we almost... If it weren't for my forbearance, ah, ding, <laughs> we would have gotten into a just a vile flame war on Facebook. She was calling for white men to kill themselves. She was cheering it on. Yeah, do it, do it, motherfucker, do it. And I had written something up saying, well, you know what? I hope you get ovarian cancer. Let me send you my phone number so when your fat little ovaries are being consumed, you can call me and let me know. That's where this was going. It did not go there. I did not post that put it away, <laughs> and didn't. But it's the same sort of thing. There's something, there's some mechanism in the mind that's related, I think, to coyoteism and losing the ability to be rational. Something about it that I, I think is connected. I think it's something that's, uh, it might tie into maybe the stories, the, the, the narrative thing that I started the podcast with, creating fictions to support an emotional conclusion. Maybe we do that in our everyday life with, I don't know, issues. <laughs> Self-image, I don't know. But it's an important thing to look into. I highly recommend anything written by Jonathan Haidt. H-A-I-D-T. It didn't change my life, but it sure as hell helped me to articulate a philosophy that I could not digest on my own for 10 years. So, thank you, Jonathan Haidt. I do appreciate that. So that, my friends, as they say, is that for this episode. I feel so short. It's only, what is this, 55 minutes? This is child's play. I feel like I've let you down. I feel like you're getting ripped off for your free podcast this week. I'm so sorry, fans. (laughs) Anyway, this has been the Escaping the Cave podcast, of course. You can check me out on ChristopherMedia.net. Also, we are on, um, or I am. Why do I keep saying we? That's the old radio guy. I mean, uh, uh, 
I got to neuter myself of that someday. Anyway, I am on uh, iTunes, also Google Play, and uh, all that good stuff, Stitcher. Um, SoundCloud. Got a new uh, SoundCloud account that uh, was not part of the podcast last time. You can also get me on the Facebook. I also have the Twitter account at ETCPod. I don't tend to engage that account very often for obvious reasons. And uh, EscapingTheCave.com. Did I mention that? I don't know. (laughs) Sorry if I doubled up there. And finally, I want to uh, give you a heads up. I do know what the next podcast is going to be. Normally, I don't. (laughs) So this one is going to be pretty thick. And it's going to be, I I think, relatively, it's going to be rather dark. This is not going to be an exercise in Sausage Party Hope coming up next week. Uh, The title of it is Winter is Here. That's how ready to go it is. I would implore you, even if you don't agree with the general premise and where I'm taking it, take a listen to it. Because, uh, as I said in this tag here, that awareness of a problem is half of solving the problem. And regardless of whether or not we agree where where we believe things are going moving forward, I think that the problems themselves leading us there, is there any debate here anymore? I mean, you've got to be drunk on Twitter. You've got to be shooting Twitter into a vein to still be in denial of what that platform and Facebook are doing to us, right? So that's a good chunk of uh, the next podcast, and uh, I would encourage you to uh, give it a listen. So on that note, thanks for clicking over. As always, appreciate the listenership, and um, we'll talk to you next time. So long.